As we've discussed, the prologue in general, which is John 1, 1 through 18, gives us the foundation from which to work from throughout the rest of the gospel. It gives us kind of the opening um, number, the opening tune, you know, like in Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or other big grand movies or in theater, like in musical theater or, or in opera, the opening musical number sets the tone for the rest of the movie and gives you cues when different characters come up. Oh, when this character comes up, that should give us hope, or we should know that this person is the hero or the villain, right? It's like when you see Darth Vader come in in Star Wars, you hear that classic soundtrack, you know that he's a bad guy, and you know what's coming. Same type of thing here. When you see different words pop up, like light or word or life, you should, things should flash in your mind and in your spirit about what's about to happen or what John, the author, is saying. So, that's the purpose of the prologue. That's what we've been discussing. And over the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the opening section of the prologue, which is one through five, which is loaded with theology, Trinitarian theology, and deep understanding and spiritual insight. We are introduced to the person of the Word. We see how the Word is related to both God Almighty and to all of creation. He is one with the Father, yet using the Greek language, we see that he is a different person than the Father, but he's the same as the Father, which is classic Trinitarian theology that we see at work. And it gives us our first taste of John's deep Trinitarian theology. <clears throat> we learn that the Word is the one by whom and through whom all things were created. Those words by whom and through whom are important. We're going to find another through word tonight that's very important. Those words are, have meaning. By, obviously, is the source, and through is the conduit, and the Word is both of those things. Every created thing finds its being and its existence in the word, and without the word, there is no existence and no life. Last week, we delved into the concepts of life in the New Testament. We learned that John is using the Greek word zoe to describe the life that the word brings and the life that he has. This life is, uh, this is opposed to the other Greek words for life, bios and suke. Bios meaning physical life, our body, our flesh and blood, and suke meaning our soul, our mind. Whereas zoe life is the full ex expression of life that is found only in the person of Jesus, or in this case in the Gospel of John thus far, in the Word, which is Jesus, not, not the Bible. Now, we talked about light as well, which we're going to see come up again and how John is using light to represent the thing by which all life depends upon. John is not using light like, you know, a lantern on a hill or like the lights up above or something like this, or even the sun. He's using light in the terms of Genesis, which when we look at Genesis, we talked last week about this a little bit, but the first thing that God creates... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, 
And the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then later, he separates the darkness and he creates the sun and the moon. So this light is obviously something different than just the photons around us. It is something much bigger. And John portrays it as something that all life in the universe depends upon. He also discusses light versus darkness and how darkness does not recognize or overcome the light. And we see that in verse 5. And the word overcome or recognize has a twofold meaning. Overcome obviously means it cannot overtake, it cannot overcome, it cannot beat the light. And then recognize also has a meaning. Whereas recognize sets up a cosmological light versus dark battle within the book of John, which allows the encounters that we see between Jesus and the Pharisees or Jesus and the Samaritan woman or Jesus and, um, and, the, and the different religious leaders and even his disciples to not be just Jesus talking theologically like I would talk with you on a one-on-one level, but something that has cosmological and huge ramifications, big picture stuff. It's grand battles between light and dark. And even the way Jesus talks about um, his opponents, you know, he talks about the Pharisees and religious leaders being of their father, the devil, and those types of things. So we have that setup being prepared for us with the light versus dark battle. Um, Even though this is just the opening scene of the prologue, in these five verses, we're given a clue as to the final results of the story. The light cannot be overcome by the darkness. That's exactly right. So um, what my grandma just said is uh, we were saying how light is not just like physical light. And in the spiritual, darkness is not just physical darkness. It's something you can feel it. It's something you can, exactly, you can walk into a lighted room and feel darkness. It's something that's oppressive, right? Big time. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we're talking about here. And we see in the end, the word wins. Light will win out. It cannot overcome the darkness. Just like when you turn a light on in a room, the light wins every time, right? There's no opportunity for the darkness to have a victory. He is the ultimate victor in this grand cosmological battle between the light and the dark. Now, I do want to make a note about that. Um, You know, one thing we see, let's do a, I just want to do a search of an image so you can kind of understand what I'm saying. All right, cool. So when I say grand cosmological battle, one image that tends to pop up is something like this, where it's God versus Satan or Jesus versus Satan, arm wrestling. That's not the image that we should have when we hear the grand cosmological battle. Or even, you know, like in Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, as much as I love those things, or, you know, superheroes where it's the good fighting evil and it's this this back and forth and back and forth. The way John describes it, it is not a back and forth. It's Lights on, Jesus wins. <laughs> like, that's it, right? So it's not, it's not this at all. Um, and that's, that's what, you know, it's not a chess match, as we see there, or something, it's, it's not that. It is very clearly, 
a God wins, the word wins, light wins, period. Um, he's the ultimate victor in this battle, and there's not really a chance for darkness to have any way to overcome it. There's no arguing. There's no, it, it just, it, this, this is truth. This is reality. Um, what this does for us personally is we do not have to have any fear of any events, any trials, any tribulations in our lives because the word has the true and ultimate victory. And this victory is complete and final. Um, now, the interesting thing is this idea, idea carries through into Revelation, which obviously is something different than the Gospel of John, but is very much a continuation of this cosmological story. And the purpose of the book of Revelation, we were actually talking about this this week, Stephen and I, is not what you might think. It's not to reveal the things that are to happen. The purpose of the book of Revelation is the fact that Jesus wins. Period. Jesus wins. So when you see all this junk that's about to happen, Jesus still wins. That's the entire purpose of the book of Revelation, which is to bring us comfort, to bring us peace, and to bring us truth in the reality that Jesus wins, right? The dragon, Satan, Lucifer does not stand a chance. Jesus wins, which again is what we're seeing here even in the introductory verses of the Gospel of John. So if you see somebody teaching Revelation and it scares you, then they're teaching it incorrectly because Revelation should bring you peace, it should bring you resolution, and should bring you truth and confidence that Jesus will win. That makes sense? Yep. All right. <laughs> well, it's scary, but, but here's the deal. Okay, Chris and I were actually just talking about that this morning, and I might get in trouble for this statement, but <laughs> there was a, she got an email, right? And we've got turbulence in the world right now, right? One thing that's happening, our banks are closing. And she got an email, and she's like, what? I don't, I don't understand what's happening. Do we, have to, do we have to worry or be afraid of this? And she actually said this because she got an email from a Christian source that she is subscribed to and said, banks are closing. And, and, and I was like, Krista, that's just fear-mongering. They're just trying to sell you a product or a book. She's like, no, I don't think that's what it is. She found the email and pulled it up, and sure enough, it said, banks are closing. You should put all your money into gold. I was like, see, they're trying to sell you a product. That's all they're trying to do. And uh, people have used things like Revelation as booksellers or as to sell their products like disaster kits or gold or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying that's not good advice. I'm just saying people are using it as a fear tactic. Exactly. You will be blessed. It says it at the very beginning. If you read and study this, you will be blessed. It doesn't say you will be afraid and you will be worried. It says you will be blessed. And the reason why is when you read and study and understand it, you will have confidence that the king wins. Might there be trouble and tribulation? Of course there's going to be trouble and tribulation. That's part of the Christian life. If you don't read the New Testament and get that, you're reading the wrong book. He also is dealing with Israel. Exactly. It also has a lot to do with Israel. He's concluding that story of Israel in the book of Revelation. Right. That's a big part of it as well. So, <clears throat> we have... 
The word winning the ultimate victory is already told for us in the beginning within these first five verses. This gives us hope, joy, and faith that the word is the one who can truly bring us salvation and he is the only one with the power to do so. I want to talk about that for a minute, the, the concept of faith. This is not in my notes, so if it's a little off kilter, then... Um, faith, what is faith? Um, my definition of faith, which is the biblical definition, I'm not saying it like it's mine and it's biblical because it's mine, but quite the opposite, I'm taking this from the Bible, is faith is simply believing God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. That's all faith is. Faith has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him, which is why this is an important concept as we study the gospel because we're having faith in who Christ says he is and having faith that Christ did what he said he did. Right? That's the whole concept, what we're going to be introduced to tonight, of the witness. The witness provides testimony as to something, as to Christ, as to his identity, and we believe the witness. We have faith in Jesus because of that. So when we study the word, when we study the gospel, we gain faith because we are believing God is who he says he is and has done what he has said he will done and will do what he said he will do. That's why studying is important, because that's where we learn what God says who he says he is. Learn what God says about himself, if you understand. Sum that up quickly with his word is truth. Yeah, we still have to believe the truth. That's, that's the part on our part. We have to believe and act on it by believing. Because if, God's, if you believe God is who he says he is and has done who he says, there's, there's a response that's required. His word is truth, is the final truth, and believing that it's true, right? So word, so the word of God is very much referring to the Bible as the word of God, while it is a term used in Scripture, um, it is not the same word that John uses in the Gospel of John. It's a different word. Um, and so he's meaning something different. Yes, he is the word of God, but the best, we're, there's one word for word, and there's one word for Jesus as word. He is the logos. That is not the same word as Bible as word, right? When it says the word of God, like the word of God, your word is a lamp unto my feet, that word would be something um, like, your, your words to me are a lamp unto my feet, like the words that you speak, whereas logos is very much something more conceptual and heady and has to do more with wisdom than it does with spoken word. Does it have the same connotations? Yes. But um, spending time with Jesus, spending time in the word, yes, of course, because these are the words that God spoke to us through his prophets, through his people. So yes, we're spending time with God because these are the words that he's spoken to us. Um, but that does not, making that direct equation can lead us into trouble. Because this is not our God. Jesus is our God. This is not our God. These are his words. Let's get into the next portion.
We're getting into the historical, kind of, historical narrative now. We're actually staying within this kind of cosmological realm, but we're focusing down a little bit because we're going to be introduced to the first human character in the gospel, which is John the Baptist. I'm going to read it for you in the ESV in English, and then we will go from there. We're going to take the next chunk all at once. This is verses 6 through 8 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Okay. So we have a bunch of big words there that we need to talk about. And we're going to do that. So this introduction to John is very important to the gospel, not just for the purpose of the gospel itself, so the the literature side of it, um, but also salvation history in general, okay? So what I mean by salvation history in general, salvation history in general is this entire book. Every story within this book is part of salvation history because from the beginning, from Genesis 1, we have God creating the story of salvation. We have God appearing. We have God doing and interacting with humanity. That is salvation history, okay? So we're not just talking about the Gospels and the New Testament when we talk about salvation history, but the entire work of God with the human race, all right? So... Every time, and we're going we're gonna to go through some, some different things here, but every single time the New Testament introduces the ministry of Jesus, so in all four of the Synoptic Gospels, and even in Acts when the story of Jesus is told, John the Baptist is appearing and he's the one who introduces Jesus. John the Baptist is, appears and he's the one who introduces Jesus. He is the witness who goes before and is sent by God. Now, um, God does some very interesting, and we're going to talk more about that um, in a little bit in a little bit later. Why that's so important that John the Baptist appears in every gospel, because there's other things that don't. So, the virgin birth does not appear in every gospel. What'd you say? John the Baptist appears in every gospel. That's important. Things. Yes. The virgin birth does not. So we as Christians have a tendency to, to, we like lists, we like logic, we like importance, we like labeling, you know, having a top 10, those types of things. We tend to put John the Baptist kind of just over here, at least in our modern evangelicalism, right? But in terms of what's in every gospel, there's the death and resurrection of Christ and John the Baptist. That's it. So those are really important things if they appear in every single gospel, right? So there are things that we should talk about. Now, does that mean all the other stuff, like the virgin birth, isn't important? Of course not. It's very important. It's, it's a part of the story. But the fact that those are the components that the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit decided are the most important 
should give us a clue as to what we should be paying attention to. Um, so, one interesting thing about this, and this was just something that I noticed as, as studying this, is that in the other Gospels, we're all given an origin of sorts of John the Baptist, and it's always as a mirror or a parallel to Jesus' origin. So when we look at the story of John the Baptist in Luke, what are we given in Luke about Jesus that's different from the other Gospels? Exactly. We're given the physiological process, the pregnancy, even what went on in Mary's mind. At, you know, we have the prayer of Mary. We have a lot going on in Luke in terms of the pregnancy and how that came about, the conception part of it. What else do we have? We have John the Baptist's pregnancy. Well, Elizabeth's pregnancy of John the Baptist and kind of what brought that about, right? We have those two stories that kind of run parallel to each, to each other. They're both divine in nature. They both mirror other stories in the Bible. Jesus mirrors, obviously, Adam. And John the Baptist, or, and, uh, yeah, John the Baptist mirrors Isaac, right? So you have two kind of mirroring stories together, which is very interesting. And I thought, oh, that's got to be in the other ones too. And sure enough, it is. When we look at Mark, we have the introduction of John the Baptist in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized. So we have both of them just kind of popping on the scene. So in Mark, we have both of them just kind of popping on the scene. They just came, which in the study of Mark, uh, that's like the word Mark uses more than any other word is he, he came, like he, he's going. Like it's just, he goes. So both of them just appear on the scene in kind of the same way. They just appear and they both have baptizing right away. And then in Matthew, Matthew does the Matthew thing. We have the birth of Christ, and the birth of Christ is preceded by a prophecy from Isaiah. Behold, the vir this is in Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's from Isaiah. And before John is introduced, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness in Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is who he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So we, to, to precede both of these characters, we have an Isaiah, I think that's a word, prophecy. I think that's kind of cool, kind of important. Not, not I mean, it, it's not really a thing, but it... Well, and they're cousins, you know, they're family, um, they're both men of Israel. All those things are important, but I just like, hey, they're, they kind of run parallel to each other. Never really noticed it before, so I'm like, hey, that's kind of cool. Um, so when we look at um, the introduction in John, let's look at the parallels here. I know, <laughs> I know, exactly, that's, that's, that's I was like, oh, that's great. So in John, we have the introduction uh, of John the Baptist, and we have the English, and then we have the Greek below it. 
uh, egenita anthropos apostolenos paratheon nua hata ionis. This is John. Yeah, I know. That's, hmm. um, the word that's important here, um, at least for our conversation about kind of the parallel between the two, is we have agenita. Agenita is an important word because in John, let's look at the Greek text of John here. In verse 3, um, verse 3, which in John 1, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So we have all those made words are all that agenita words. And, and so what the author, and from this point forward, when I say author, I'm talking about John, the author of John. When I say John, I'm going to try to remember that I'm talking about John the Baptist. Because that's the thing. That's, see, that's why, that's why he said the beloved disciple. One of the reasons. Um, so we have that agenita word popping up. So this is kind of John's drawing the parallel from Jesus to John. We have John is coming from the word because the word is the one who brought everything into existence. Everything that was made was made through him. And John, he's using the same word that he used to talk about creation, to talk about John coming into the picture. Is that that sent from God? Uh, no, sent is a different word. That's, that's the next word we're going to talk about. Um, so the author is using this, ref- what, what, is, what we translate, um, this actually is not necessarily a good trans- translation. There was a man sent from God. The word should be, there was a man who came There came a man sent from God, is what the translations should be, um, or is a good translation. So, But the word that he uses there is a creation word, and a word that gives meaning and being to the universe is the same word being used to talk about John coming, okay? And John coming into the story. So this is not an accident that John, the author, used this passage. The author is using this word intentionally so that us, his readers, will understand that the witness of John the Baptist was not just a random event, but it was an event that was planned out just like creation was planned out and orchestrated by the same word that we just met, the same word that was in the beginning with God that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that same creative force in Genesis is the same force acting upon John. All right? So this creation action that we see using that word agenita, we're going to have kind of expanded upon because we have another word, Oops, not that pound. And the next word that we're going to talk about is sent by God. So as we have seen already, John is showing us that this advent of John the Baptist is definitively a God-ordained event. And he's doing that just by the language he uses, just by the word choice, on the same level as the creation of the universe. And he's doing it further with this word here. 
Now this word transliterated, meaning if I were to take each of those and do them into English, the English letters, we have apostolenos, which obviously should lead you to think apostle. So this word is the same word. So this is the verbal form of the noun apostle, okay? <clears throat> which obviously is a crucial word in the New Testament. This word, and, and not just in the New Testament, but in, in ancient Greek, biblical Greek as well. This word was used to entrust, charge, or commission someone with a message or a task, okay? To entrust, charge, or commission someone with a message or a task. Now, in almost every case, especially in the New Testament, this word is emphasizing the authority of the person doing the sending. The authority of the person doing the sending. Why is that important? Well, when we look at, for instance, the letters of Paul, almost every time that Paul introduces himself in his letters, how does he introduce himself? He introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus or a servant of Christ Jesus. In Romans, it's a servant. Second, I think in 1 Corinthians as well. I'm just going to confirm that. Yep, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, it is an apostle of Christ Jesus, etc. <clears throat> we in the modern church have used, has taken this to mean something very different, especially in some denominations who say that the apostolic church is the church with authority because the apostles were in charge of the church. So they say that this church was best because it had Peter, James, and John in charge because they were apostles. Well, Peter, James, and John would say, wait a second, I'm only an apostle because Jesus sent me. I am not an apostle because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. And that's the significance of this word, especially in the Greek and in the context. So this word was used to emphasize the authority of the person doing the sending. The messenger is merely a tool of the person doing the sending. All right? <clears throat> He's a tool of the sender. As the sender, the person who sent the apostle of the message is the one with all of the authority and the reason that the messenger is even necessary. In almost all the uses of this term in both secular sources and in biblical Greek sources, so the, the New Testament, this term is specifically referring to a divine messenger. Um, it's a technical term for divine authorization, all right? Um, so this is not being used as something like an office, but more if you have apostle on your name, that means that Jesus approved you and sent you. That's all it means. And that's important why that's all it means. Because it has nothing to do with the person themselves. That's not a thing. So Chad asks, um, you see sometimes people claiming to be an apostle. Um, and is that wrong because it shouldn't mean something other than the 12? No. So an apostle can be anyone who is sent, and this is laid out pretty clearly in Paul's letters, 
um, an apostle, well, who's sent by God to start a work. Um, that's um, an apostle is merely a messenger from God with his divine authority. So that could be me to you, you to me. Any of us can be apostles in this framework because it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God sending a message through us. Does that make sense? That's Yes, there's the office of apostle, which Paul establishes in the book of Ephesians. He establishes the offices of apostle, evangelist, uh, pastor, teacher, and prophet. Those are something different, um, and we know that because he lists prophet as one of the roles, and there's no need for prophets in the New Testament. So there must be something a little different going on there. Yeah, it's all about the appointment from the king. So... It doesn't matter. The person bringing the news is not the focus. It's the king himself, and that's, that's what is going on here. It's not like, and, and we're going to see throughout this passage and these, these phrases, John, the author, makes it very clear, uh, John the Baptist, as great as he was, it's all about the person of Jesus. That's one of the reasons also, which we didn't really touch on this, why John doesn't put his name on the gospel, because it's not about me, it's about the person of Jesus, right? That's, that's the whole point here. Um, the messenger, so John the Baptist, we as the messengers of God are his tools. We are not to make it about ourselves, right? Does that make sense? So um, the other big important word here is anthropos. Anthropos is important here because in the translation, there came a man sent from God. Um, John specifically uses the word anthropos instead of, for man, instead of the word that would have been considered uh, probably a more proper way to talk about it as an individual human male if that makes sense. Um, so when he uses the word man, it's more humanity. There was a member of humanity, okay? Um, why is that important to us? Because when we looked at the Greek text, right before in verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So he's using that same word to connect the dots for us. And again, we'll talk about why that's important, but one of the reasons I believe that's important is this is emphasizing um, the fact that he's kind of, this is, a, this is big picture, and John is the representative of mankind, sort of. So John is not just the witness or the prophet to first century Jews in Judea, and we'll talk about kind of some of the parallels to the Old Testament, but um, John is the Elijah, the Moses, the John the Baptist for all of the world, not just the Jews in first century Judea, if that makes sense. So he is from, he is the, the representative, he's the one who prepares the way for all of us, not just those people who heard him preach in the wilderness of Judea. He would not have been preaching to the Gentiles. No. And that wasn't because of anything he decided. That was just he preached to the Jews in Judea. 
right? And we know that mostly because of, I think it's, one of the passages says he was preaching to the Jews in Judea, okay? Just like Jesus. Jesus only has select encounters to the Gentiles. He doesn't have, um, you know, the Samaritan woman and a few other situations like that. He's not going out to the Gentiles. That's a role significantly designated for Peter and for Paul, okay, which he talks, there's significance to that, um, especially when you look at Israel, Israel's job, the reason God sent Israel and God created Israel was to be a representative of him to earth and of earth to him, okay, they were to be the, just like the tribe of Levi was to him, and in the tribe of Levi, the high priest was to God, it was kind of like a pyramid, it was high priest, tribe of Levi, or high priest, the priests, tribe of Levi, Israel, the world, right? Israel was supposed to be just like the tribe of Levi was to Israel to the world. And they failed at that mission. And so Jesus had to come and take over the role as high priest and the priestly tribe. Does that make sense? And so he took over and then his followers then, so he had to get Israel right, and then from there, Israel went out to the world. <clears throat> but yeah, John the Baptist would have been preaching exclusively to Jews, mostly because of the historical context and how he, how he pre- preached. <clears throat> All right, so now we enter into the historical narrative of um, the author, that the author gives us, that John gives us, simply by the author telling us um, that his name was John, okay? Whose name was John? He's putting something tangible on big events that he's talking about. This John name is used 18 times in the Gospel of John, and every time it is always referring to John the Baptist. So if you see John within the Gospel, it's John the Baptist he's talking about. Now, another interesting point in this term or in this conversation is the author doesn't qualify this by saying John the Baptist or by saying John the cousin or, you know, like some of the other passages and other narratives do. He doesn't give us any other information about him other than this is his name and that he was sent by God. This is intentional because the author is choosing to focus less on the person of John the Baptist and more on the mission of John, to be a witness. His identity is secondary to the mission he has as the witness to the word, or the witness of the word to the world. And verse 7 is going to talk to us more about that. He came as a witness, or a better translation, this one came as a witness, that's the same word this one used In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. This one, so John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Okay, the idea of being a witness or a herald, that's kind of another word for witness, is definitely not a new idea within the biblical narrative. There are several witnesses that preceded the salvation narratives throughout the Old Testament. Moses with the Exodus, the prophets with the um, salvation out of Babylon, 
the judges preceding every single encounter with the, the people like the Philistines or the uh, you know, Ammonites or whoever the case may be. Um, and even you could, you could talk about Joseph being a witness, uh, you know, preceding the salvation of Jacob and his family. The witness figure is someone who is ordained by God and sent by God to prepare the people for salvation. This term is very important in the Johannine or in the Gospel of John. There are, in fact, seven witnesses to the person of Christ, and verses 6 through 8 gives us our first witness to the Word. And there is a handout, it should be online, talking about the seven witnesses. These seven witnesses are John the Baptist, Nathaniel, Peter, Jesus himself, Martha, Thomas, and then finally, John the Apostle John himself. Same word, same word exactly. Two witnesses in Revelation are the same word. And it has the same kind of weight that this has. <clears throat> Which, again, those two, as important as they are, they're still not as important as John the Baptist. He is the final, ultimate witness. So this word witness... Um, which let's go back to the Greek text for a minute. Marturion. What word have we? Martyr. There isn't a huge connection here to that because obviously that's not what we're talking about here. This is preparing the way for salvation. Um, martyrs do do that, but what? Yeah, he was. He was a martyr, but but I'm I'm talking in the. Uh, in the, the New Test, the Acts stuff, uh, the, John, the gospel writer, is not making that connection for us right now. He is making a connection for us. That was, that's just kind of a happy coincidence. The connection that John, the, what John wants us to understand when we read this is not martyr like Stephen, the martyr, but martyr or witness as a legal witness. Okay, so the primary understanding when we see the word witness in John is a legal witness. And by wit legal witness, I mean the legal meaning of testifying or bearing witness to the true state of affairs by one who has fuller knowledge or a superior position. And also by legal, I mean in a courtroom, you call a witness to the stand and the witness talks to the jury and tells them, the true state of events as they know it, right? You call witnesses to get closer and closer to the truth, to the events. So as we go through the gospel, we're going to see these witnesses tell us the true state of affairs, the true things that are happening about Christ, so we as the jury might give our decision on to whether to believe in this person or of Jesus or not, right? That's the whole purpose of the gospel as we've talked about. So when John uses the word witness, that's what he wants us to think in our mind. We're sitting there as a juror deciding our fate, really, not his fate, our fate, whether we believe that Jesus is who he says he is or not, which is where that concept of faith comes into play. Um, as a side note, this idea of a legal witness, that, what did I say? Legal meaning of testifying or bearing witness to the true state of affairs by one who has 
fuller knowledge or a superior position. When we talked about why John said he was the one who best could write the gospel, why he used the one that the apostle who Jesus loved, he is saying that he's the best friend of Jesus. He's saying that he was the closest person to Jesus, which means he's the person who knew him best. So he is the best witness to Jesus in this legal definition. He's the best one for the task of revealing the identity of Jesus, which is why he wrote the gospel. So back to the narrative. We have the first clause of this verse, which the first clause is here. We have the first clause is here. I'm just going to mark these out. The second clause is there, and the third clause is there. So we have three clauses within this verse. These three clauses tell us three things about the witness. One, the first, is it describes the commission of the witness. He came as a witness. This is described with that came word, the same word we saw before, that creative force. And it also is emphasizing, because that word is used, it's calling us back to the word doing the creative acting. So this is saying he came, but he didn't come on his own power. He came through the power of the word. He came through his sender, right? So this is emphasizing the sender, the word, not the messenger himself, the role of witness is the important thing here, not the identity of the witness. That's an important fact. We have a second clause, that yellow clause up there, and this is telling us the object to which John witnesses, which in this case is the light. Right here, we have the light. Now, clearly, the author is calling us back to the previous verses where he talked about the light, which he described the word as the light of humanity, the light not being overcome by the darkness. The author doesn't spend a lot of time discussing what this light is in this passage right here because he's just talked about it. So this light is clearly referring to the word, the person of the word, the thing that needs witnessing, the, the, because obviously the darkness, us in darkness, do not recognize the word, do not recognize the lights. That's what we learned before with that in verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it or recognized it. So he is witnessing to us, to the world, so that we might recognize the lights. And then finally, the third clause of this verse in blue there gives us the purpose of the witness, which is to bring about salvation by or through his witness. <clears throat> now, there's a few interesting things going on here. First of all, we have through him at the end of the clause, this little phrase right here. Now, this could be taken to mean through him, meaning through the word. However, this is why grammar is very important in everything we read and everything we try to understand, understand, especially in the Bible. There is no him yet. The only him that we've been introduced to is John. Thus far in the passage, 
we don't have a hymn introduced. In the ESV translation, it does translate it as he, but that is not the appropriate translation. The appropriate translation is this one, all right? It's just pointing us back to the antecedent, which is the word. So the only him, the only masculine pronoun that we have been introduced to at this point in the story is John. So when it says that all might believe through him, also he's the only subject or noun in this. That's a personal thing. The light is not personal yet. He is the only personal pronoun. So it's a he. Um, It's the person of John. All my believe through him. Now, so all my believe through John, through the witness. Why does John the author use this terminology? Because that kind of sounds heretical. It's like, no, the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. Well, he's not saying that we believe in John. We believe through him, through the message that he has sent us. How does the Isaiah passage go that we just read in Matthew a little bit ago? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. So John is giving us a way to salvation. He is showing us a way. He's not even giving it to us. The word is the one giving it to us. He is showing us the way. He is preparing the way. So obviously, we go through the message that was prepared through John. That's why this passage is also not to be taken as John speaking to those in Judea, the Jews in Judea, but John is speaking to all of humanity and all mankind. He is the witness for all of us. All right, we have to go through John kind of first before we go get to Jesus. And I'm not talking like we go, oh, we have to pray to John and then get to Jesus. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the preparation that John gave, which what was the preparation that John did? What? Repent. Repent. That's exactly right. Repent of your sins. That's the preparation that John gives us. And we see it right here that all might believe through him, meaning through repentance of their sins, ultimately is what's going to be concluded by that. John is not an instrument of salvation in any way here. He's just talking that he is a tool of God to get us to salvation which is still all a part of God's plan. It's still he's the one giving the salvation. He's the one who has the power. John is just God's tool. And he's an important tool, but he is just a tool of God. Sorry, he was baptizing before. He was baptizing before and telling people to repent. Yep. It was a baptism of exactly, a baptism of repentance. So second, we have a question of who John is witnessing to. And I kind of already talked about this. This is not referring to the local witness of John. Those in ancient Judea who heard the preaching of John, we see that, um, we see that story told to us in John, um, later on in the passage of John. We see John actually talking in the local sense, what he's doing. This is John in the big cosmic picture of salvation. 
All right, this is, so he is witnessing to all humanity, all mankind. <clears throat> and we see that emphasized with the fact that he was a anthropos man, meaning he came out of humanity in general, not he was a man who came from Israel or he was a man who came from this tribe, but he came out of all of humanity, all right? And I think that's important. And this is a crucial part of the story of salvation. John is not merely a historical actor, okay? He's not just a person who happened to be there. And why is that important? Because the rest of the characters in John are that way. Peter, John the Apostle, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're all I'm not saying they're happenstance. I don't, we're, you know, we don't believe in coincidence. But they're not crucial to the story. They are not figures that were preordained. <laughs> they, they were, but not, not in this sense, right? They are not crucial actors. They are just side characters. John is an important part of the story. As I said, he is in all of the Gospels, one of the only parts of the Gospels that is continuous through all four. Exactly, yeah. So if he is in all four Gospels, just like the resurrection and the death of Christ, it's probably pretty important. <clears throat> he is the final witness, the final Elijah, the final Moses. He's a crucial part of this salvation history. Why is that important? Because he's not the point of this story. He's clearly differentiating himself from John the Baptist. So if John were a character in any other book from this point back, he'd be the main character, like Moses was, like David was, like Elijah and Elisha, because they all played the same role, and John had a greater role, right? But he is not the main star. And the next verse emphasizes that. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So this is John the author saying, look, John is an amazing character. He is a witness sent from God. He is very important to the story. But he's not the story. Jesus is the story. He came to bear witness about the light. That's all he came to do. <clears throat> Which is important, but it's not the point. The point is Jesus Christ which is further emphasized throughout the gospel, we have some of the best interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders when he says, hey, uh, Abraham? Yeah, I, I, was, I was before him. I was his God. And uh, Moses? Yeah, I was his God too. So he's, he's saying he's better than all of these things. That's, that's kind of one of the big points in the gospel of John is he's better than all the rest that came before John is important, but his importance is only found in the thing that he is witnessing about, which is the light or the person of Jesus Christ. These two, Jesus and John, are definitely linked. Um, they're important to each other, as we've seen. He's in all four of the Gospels, but they are definitely different. They are not cut from the same cloth, even though they kind of were. <laughs> the witness is just a witness. He has come to prepare the way and to bear witness, to tell the truth, and to reveal 
who the light is. The other reason we might have some clarification here, um, a double clarification, a negative and a positive, is perhaps, and we know that in the historical context, some groups were putting John up on a pedestal, right? And so the apostle John was, John the, the apostle John was saying, hey, John the Baptist was great, but he was not the person you should be putting up. He was just a witness. <clears throat> and the main point, that he is a witness to the light, and he is the first of seven witnesses within the gospel of John. The other big point that I think this makes is that this story that we are reading here of, that John is telling us of the person of Jesus Christ is the ultimate and the climax story of salvation. So this is the biggest point here that we need to study and we need to have in our hearts and in our minds. The other salvation stories like the Exodus, like David, like Jacob and Esau, all these wonderful stories of Scripture are just shadows of the story that we are about to be told in the Gospel of John. Right? That's kind of the, the, the sense that we're getting by having all these, he wasn't the light. He wasn't the light. He's just bearing witness about the light, which is John's kind of telling us that all these are bearing witness about the light. That's kind of the sense that we're getting with the, the role that John the Baptist is being given here. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate salvation. He's the final salvation. He's the one that we should be paying the most attention to. Any questions or thoughts or comments? What other kinds of baptisms are there? Uh, that's a good question. So we have a baptism of repentance. It was very common in the ancient Israel, ancient Jewish world, to um, baptize for repentance. Baptism just simply rep rec recognizes the fact that you're dying to something and being raised up to something else, right? So you're dying to your sins and you're being raised to a new life. Um, very similar to what sacrifices would have done, you're killing something, you're shedding the blood, you're killing the old thing, and you're being given new life because of that, right? Um, and so there's baptism, like just the symbolic gesture, which is what John was kind of doing. Repent of your sins and be baptized. Die to yourself. Come alive to your new life in following God's laws. Um, and there's also the baptism that we do as Christians, which is the exact same thing. We're making a physical representation of an inward change. So we're saying, I have died to myself and come alive in Christ. That's that baptism. And then we also recognize the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which isn't really a baptism because it's not a physical representation of the inward, ex a outward expression of the inward. We call it baptism because it kind of just fits. Um, and it's historically what we've used. But... Yeah, more immersion an, or a filling, an indwelling. A filling is probably the best word. Um, a filling up of, of the Holy Spirit's power within our lives, right? Um, and the best way to describe that is when you become a Christian, there's clearly a change in your heart, right? So that's not from you because your old self 
was awful, right? You know, and you've died to that. So this new self, well, that power has to come from somewhere. It doesn't come from yourself. We're not a, uh, a uh, self-help club. It comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And that's a continual process that starts when you're a Christian, when you become saved, and then you ask the Lord to fill you up constantly and constantly and constantly. And as you're filled up, his power works through you. That's what the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Some people, um, we tend to fall in this category. Um, we, we just don't like to connect ourselves with the certain movements. But some people believe that, which like I said, we kind of believe this way, that once you're saved, there's a secondary moment in your salvation life where you ask the Lord to fill you up in a greater capacity and that's what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where it's this kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, an all-in moment. Um, in Acts, you'd laid hands on and the, the Holy Spirit would come upon that person in a new and powerful way. And it happened the first time at Pentecost, and we see it happening in other times throughout the, gospel, or throughout the book of Acts. Um, and throughout the church, you know, um, signs and wonders typically accompany that, which in our theology, signs and wonders are for the main purpose of edifying the body and bringing believers to salvation, right? So, um, yeah, so there's, there's a moment where you can ask the Lord for a greater thing to happen in your life and a greater movement of his Holy Spirit so, you can, so he can do greater things through you. I really want to emphasize the fact that it has nothing really to do with you and I. Or salvation, yeah. It's a secondary thing for, well, it does have to do with salvation, but for other people. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 important, the two important ones that we need to concern ourselves with are, as I've described, the baptism. The baptism that we perform as a ceremonial obedience act where he says, go out into the world, make disciples, and be baptized, where we display a physical representation of an inward work. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we would say is once you are a Christian, once you have been saved, you ask in the Lord to indwell you and use you, really. All right, well, let's pray. Pray for safety for everyone driving home and whatever that is out there. <laughs> it doesn't look too windy, so that's good. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. I pray for safety for everyone as we travel home. Give us a wonderful week in your word. Just bless us, be with us, and protect us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.